0: This show is brought to you by Ridley College. A new hope. After baby Jesus was born, wise men came from a long, long way away. And they brought presents to Jesus, like gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not far behind, there was a red-haired wise man who brought lamingtons and fruitcake. And here he is! Whenever I see a red-haired wise man, Michael, I think of you. The Scottish wise man.
1: Well, I try to be a wise king, Scott, and welcome to the last episode of the Now and the Not Yet, the show where we look at all things in theology, biblical studies, church history, and ministry practice. Glad you're with us. The Now and Not Yet. (laughs) Scott, let me play a game with you that I play with my children called Would You Rather? Okay, let's do it. So here's the question, but I'm going to make it more theological. Would you rather be stuck on a desert island with the arch-heretic Arius or the arch-heretic Marcion?
0: Well, Arius is said to be winsome, wise, and wealthy. So he's a nice guy, he's mostly clever, and would probably have the latest Xbox console, so probably Arius.
1: Yeah, well, the correct answer, I think, is Marcion because the guy was a shipbuilder, so he could hopefully build a boat oh. and get you off the island. Here's, here's another one. Would you rather be chased by a hundred chickens through the Ridley campus, or would you rather be chased by one rhinoceros? Hundred chickens or one rhinoceros. Hundred chickens. Hundred
0: chickens. Okay. What's the right answer? I think it's a hundred chickens. That you... Yeah, that sounds safer to me. It does. What about you? Can you think of one? Would you rather? Would you? Uh, this is one I think about a lot. Would you rather have late night drinks with Luther or with Calvin?
1: I think I would rather do it with Calvin because I reckon Luther would get pretty drunk pretty quickly. Yes, right. And he might become agitated. I, th- I, think, I think Luther might have been an angry drunk. I don't know. Right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay, here's another one. Would you rather hang out with Perpetua and Felicity just before they're going into the arena or would you prefer to hang out with Bonhoeffer when he's writing his poem, who am I before he's about to get shot by the Nazis?
1: Oh man, that is a hard one. That's that's, mm. that's a bit of a downer too. It
0: is, but like,
1: uh, whose I last
0: think, days would you like to share?
1: I think I'd have to pick Perpetua uh, and Felicity.
0: Yeah, why's that? Because uh, there's babies I, involved, or
1: uh, no, just because they they are two outstanding women. It's you know in the ancient Roman Empire. Uh, I, I don't know. I just I just wanted to be with them. I don't know whether would I be there to console them or to bask in their um,
0: the, awesomeness,
1: the, the, their, their awesomeness. Um, you know, would you be like to minister to them? It's, I mean, it's, a, it's a, you know, being a chaplain to someone who's about to be martyred for their faith. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. So, yeah, that's pretty good. But anyway, that's a good game I play with my kids. What would you rather?
0: Mm. Would you rather be at, Laz- at the raising of Lazarus or at the clearing of the temple?
1: Oh, definitely clearing of the temple.
0: Yeah, a bit yeah. more rambunctious fine.
1: Yeah, just Jesus getting a whip. Just you know, Jesus going beast mode with some whips. Like, <laughs> yeah, take that capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's so what that I mean.
0: Was... You'd also like to be there when uh, the early church was sharing all their goods in the Book of Acts.
1: Yeah, that works for me too. You know, being being the um, Marxist that I am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as as we all know. Yeah. No
0: wonder God tried to burn you all with fire. What the redheads. No, no, when, like, they're sharing all their goods and then, boom, he tries to burn them at Pentecost. I don't know. That's, that's what happens, right? I think you need to reread the Book of Acts. This, uh, is, this
1: but... is my problem with theologians. I didn't get enough Bible. <laughs> less less Boniface, more Book of Acts.
0: More Bible, okay.
1: Yeah. Let's go with that. Hey, for everyone in the comments, tell us your answer. Which one would you rather? Chickens, rhino, Arius, Marcion, uh, Perpetuan, Felicity, or Bonhoeffer? Who? In those scenarios, what would you pick? Let us know.
0: But now and not yet. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for your feedback about whether or not Christians should uh, legally smoke uh, marijuana if it's available to you in your context. Um, Mike, have you had any further thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, it's a big no from me. Um, I think the only, the only thing I want to put in this body is the Holy Spirit. That's the only spirit I want to get high on. And yeah, I mean, I just don't understand. You know, even cigarettes, I don't. I don't like cigarettes because you know anything you stick into your body and set on fire, <laughs> I don't think it's going to end well. So yeah, I'm still not into the um, cannabis is legal. I, I still think avoid it like the toxic carcinogen that it is.
0: Yeah, fair enough. So some people have um, asked us for more of an ethical framework for approaching this issue. So I thought I'd um, just outline four points of an ethical framework that we might use, and it's the kind of stuff you learn here at Ridley College, on how to approach um, contested ethical issues. So the first thing you want to consider is the nature of the, the being in question. So you're dealing with a human being. Should a human being um, toke up? Well, you, so you need to think of well, what's the nature of that person and what's their destiny? So the nature of a human being is to become Christ-like and united with God by the Spirit. So you need to ask yourself whether smoking marijuana will encourage or discourage that direction for their life. So that's a meta question. Fair enough. So what's the nature and what's the direction of that person's life? Secondly, you'd want to ask what obligations are in place? And by that we mean just by virtue of being a human and relating to other humans, you have obligations on how you need to treat me mm-hmm. and I have obligations on how you should treat you. So are there uh, requirements in human relations that I might not be able to, re- to reach if I'm high? So we can think of parents that might not be good parents mm-hmm. if they're smoking marijuana and we can think of failing to live up to obligations in relationships. So that again is another no, right? So we've got what's the nature of the thing, what are the obligations that are in place then what are the um, character consequences? Jesus calls us in the Beatitudes to be what kind of a person? To be
1: holy, uh, to be like God, to be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect, to be peacemakers, uh, to be the meek, to be non-violent, all those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. And so when we're high sometimes, we're not humble, meek, grieving, cogent. Cogent, <laughs> yeah, aware. <laughs> um, peacemakers, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Oh, they are hungering. They are definitely hungering. Yeah, right. But, um, but there might be co- character consequences associated with drug use, um, which means we're more likely to grow in vice rather than in virtue. So once again, it's a no from a character perspective. So we've got the nature of the thing, obligations, the character perspective, and then we've got consequences perspective well, what might be the consequences that come about if you're high? It's always hard to predict consequences, and in ethical theory, that's taken to be the weakest aspect, but it's not Surprising if you fall out of a window, drive really, really slowly and get into trouble, say something stupid, treat someone in a way that they shouldn't be treated, also waste your money on drugs. So there's a whole lot of outcome consequences associated with smoking drugs and marijuana, for example, that again seem to be a no. So on that framework, nature, commands, character, consequences taken together, it seems to be a no on every aspect, Mike.
1: I think it is. Uh, and the good thing, you can apply that paradigm to a whole bunch of issues uh, as well. I mean, what would be another good ethical conundrum that you could apply that paradigm to?
0: Uh, we've used it with pornography in class. Um, so um, what is the nature of the person um, and how does pornography impact them and the growth into Christ-likeness? What are the commands and rules in place against that? Character consequences and then relational consequences.
1: I think on that one the consequences actually is important because pornography can actually rewire your brain and change the way you get like aroused.
0: Yes, exactly. And,
1: you, and then the only way you can get like excited is by sort of increasingly erotic, sometimes violent or sort mm. of oh, – I don't know what the words kinky. I don't know what words. You, you need in increasingly sexualized ways, often with like things like violence. In order to become sexually capable, yeah, uh, which which I thought I thought on that one, the consequentialist one would be a big deal. Yes, it is because because yeah. you know your inability to perform any sort of sexual congress at that point would be a big thing. Why this is wrong, not just towards other. I mean, I've often said. Pornography particularly degrades women and the relationship men have with women, but also what it does to your own brain. It it,
0: it rewires the the, the sexual chemistry in your Mm. brain. Mm. And, I mean, there are a number of issues such as drug taking and use of pornography where there's a lot of science behind uh, the changes that come about in a person's neurobiology and in their body as a consequence of participating those. In it'd be those.
1: In, it'd be interesting to do that to things like gambling because I know gambling also rewires people. Absolutely, man. Rewires brains and it and it's and it, and it does it it becomes like a. Um, I think the sort of the brain chemistry with gambling is kind of similar to like you know what cocaine does to you. Yeah,
0: yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. The,
1: the kind of the, the stimulants and then you crave the stimulants. And all that kind of thing, and you've got to look at gambling and who benefits from mm, it, mm-hmm. uh, what it does to your, your relationships, and, and and how it other does you know, negative impacts it has on family um, uh, marriages and all sorts of things. The ability to be a parent, and yes. to, you know, to you know, buy your kids like food,
0: yeah, absolutely, and stuff
1: like that. Yeah, I mean, well, that, that's a, that's a good ethical paradigm mm. for people to think about when they're dealing with any sort of ethical conundrum, whether that's you know cannabis usage, you know, pornography. Um, or just about anything, I guess. So have you found it that way? It's, it's useful. Yeah, we have,
0: we have. And we use it actually to structure a whole semester when we teach ethics at Ridley College. What's the nature of the things? What are the commands that are in place and obligations? Character concerns and then outcomes. So we work through that weeks one to eight and then the final four weeks we apply it to different issues and I survey the class and each semester we do different issues. Oh,
1: excellent. Yeah, Good it's a head. great class, yeah. But now and not awesome.
0: yet. Well, Scott, let's change topics a bit. I want to
1: talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, but very controversial, and that is the topic of penal substitutionary atonement. Okay. Now, uh, in brief, this is the view that God's penalty against our sin is meted out on Christ in the crucifixion. You know, He bears the penalty of our sin on the cross.
0: So He He cops the wrath
1: that we deserve. Exactly. The penalty against our transgression is unloaded upon him and he absorbs it so there's no penalty, no judgment, no wrath left for us. Now, that's penal substitutionary atonement. Now, I I believe in that. I believe in that earnestly. But I've seen these sort of two extreme kind of tribalizations of the topic. Okay. And you get one tribal, I don't know exactly what to call them. You want to call them a kind of like, you know, like a pop Calvinism or something, they want to argue that penal substitution is the the main uh, view of the atonement. It's the most central one. It's the kind of sine qua non of the gospel. Without the gospel, you can't have it. And the only alternative to that is some sort of airy-fairy kind of liberal theology. So you've got like penal substitution is kind of the the main thing and the center.
0: So they wouldn't agree that there is also a moral example that's given by Christ, that there's no rescue from the devil as part of the complex of the crucifixion? I think they
1: might acknowledge them in theory, but they want to say the atonement really is penal substitutionary atonement, or let just, let's just call it PSA. Well, that's the main thing. Okay, okay fair the enough. The gospel is connected to that. It's not necessarily you, – you, you can have the other things – Okay. Mm. Uh, But they're not essential to the gospel. But you cannot forfeit PSA. Okay. Without forfeiting the gospel. Okay. Uh, But then you get the other tribe who says look, PSA is kind of like a version of cosmic child abuse God hurting, torturing, abusing Mm. his son so he can somehow. Forgive you. I mean, it's sort of that's just a macabre medieval invention by Anselm in like the 12th century. You should put that in the bin along with your QAnon membership badge. Yeah, sure. You know, so you got these sort of two extreme views. Mm. Uh, of it. One is, it's like, it's completely central, and another one, it's this sort of horrible, macabre, medieval thing. Now, I I think both tribes in their own way are wrong. Now, I think there is penal substitutionary atonement clearly taught in the New Testament. I mean, when I go somewhere like, you know, Romans uh, 8, you know, where Paul says very clearly that that God condemns sin in the flesh of the Son of God. Yeah, okay, so that's and to
0: Corinthians, he becomes sin for us so yeah, that we that's, might become that's the righteousness the substitutionary. So yeah. there's
1: there. all my favorite verses from one, from 1 Peter, you know, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then you've got like you know Galatians three thirteen. it's clearly there. Mm. But But know this, in Luke's summary of apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, Luke's digest, uh, of how the apostles preached, uh, the death of Jesus barely gets mentioned.
0: Well, it does speak about forgiveness of sins, though. So to oh, be forgiven of your sins.
1: It does. So that they do mention historically that Jesus died. But in Luke's drafting, or in Luke's summary of apostolic preaching, the emphasis is more on the resurrection and exaltation. Right. Now, the only two places where he really expounds the meaning of Jesus' death is in the Lucan version of the Last Supper. Mm. where Jesus mentions, you know, the blood that was poured out. Mm. So that does have sacrificial um, overtones. But in Acts 20, when Paul is talking to the uh, Ephesian elders at Miletus, he talks about the blood, um, how, how God... Redeem the church with the blood of Christ. Yes. Okay, but that's the only two real men in all of Luke Acts, which is 28% of the New Testament. Yeah. Those are the only two points where he really mentions the cross and the atonement. Most of apostolic preaching doesn't mention that. In other words, the apostolic preaching does not ma- does not major on penal substitutionary atonement. Now, it might assume it. Okay? But it doesn't major on it. And so I think what we need with the atonement, uh, a theory of the atonement or a way of preaching or understanding the atonement, is to reflect more of the Bible, which has penal substitutionary atonement, but as you mentioned before, it has these other things as well. It has things like heal- healing. There is the imitation of Christ. So what we need in our view of the atonement is a more comprehensive and kaleidoscopic view with all of the dimensions of Christ's death. Because the early church was very content to say that Christ died for us, mm. Christ died for our sins, mm. but they never attempted to get the same degree of specificity on what that for. In Christ died for us as they did with their Trinitarian theology or with their understanding of the divinity of Christ. There was never really the attempt to come to the same specificities. They were very content to say that Christ died for us and then to resource and rehearse various biblical images for what Christ did as a substitution, as a victory, as healing, as redemption.
0: So what what you're saying is that in the creed it's Uh, For us and for our salvation, he becomes incarnate in the Virgin Mary, suffered on the cross under Pontius Pilate. And you want to basically say, we know that it's the incarnation and the cross that secures salvation and reconciliation with God. Let's not push one dimension of that uh, at the expense of the others. That's exactly what I'm saying. So, you know, you've
1: definitely got to have PSA in your quiver of arrows. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you can't make sense of exegesis of those key texts that we just looked through. Mm. But I wouldn't treat PSA as if it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the one ring to rule them all, the, the, the kind of like the only one. And a lot of people talk as if um, PSA is the only version of the atonement. In the New Testament, although the only way of explaining it, whereas I think in the biblical language, in the in the repertoire of biblical idioms, there's a number of ways both the effects and the kind of the mechanics of the atonement are described. Okay, so
0: so I mean I I like have penal substitution high uh, in terms of the. what Jesus achieves. Mm -hmm. And I also see the many other dimensions. I usually list five dimensions in my theology classes that go together. And it seems that penal substitution has a priority in the way that the New Testament authors draw on the Old Testament, Leviticus in particular and Isaiah, Mm -hmm. but there are other dimensions as well that also come from the book of Isaiah. But how how do you know
1: PSA is the priority? Uh, because Jesus, that, that that's sort of a theological judgment. Is that something the texts are making? Because it's definitely not the case of the book of Acts.
0: But, but Jesus, is, when he makes his passion predictions, he makes it clear that it's for the forgiveness of sins.
1: Uh, yeah, but he, doesn't, but he doesn't mention a mechanism of substitution. He simply says the Son of Man is going to be handed over. Uh, and we know from other sayings that this will be for redemption.
0: Or and it's, for on pa- it's on Passover, though.
1: Oh, well, yeah, you do have the Passover imagery. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. And you do have the Passover lamb kind of killed both in place of instead of uh, the people. Yeah. And Paul makes use of it in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about Christ, our Passover lamb has mm, slain. Mm. But Christ can also see his death as the way he triumphs over the world. He triumphs over Satan. Yes. Uh, oh, he, yes, yes. He can also um, say that his death is going to be an example for others. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. So in I John's think gospel, th- yes. These are,
1: these are all of the dimensions to Jesus' yes. death that we need to keep. Yes. Again, I don't want to dismiss or belittle PSA, but I want to put it and situate it in a far more fuller orbed and kind of filled out view of the atonement and Christ's death and the fullness of its meaning rather than on these sort of, um, you know, these uh, aggravated denunciations of Anselm, who Mm. I do not think was the first. I think you can find it in church history, find it in 1 Clement, Epistle of Diognetus in Athanasius. You can find PSA in a lot of places. But I I don't want to act as if PSA is the only thing about Christ's death that matters. Because I want a far more richer, comprehensive view of the cross in all of its richness.
0: You know what I I would love, Mike, is someone to, to do what you've said, to recognize the beauty, but then to make the connections clear. Like, if he's a substitute, how does that work with a victory over the devil, specifically? Now, I know that um, recently there's been a couple of books that have tried to to make those connections, but I think our students would be really served if we helped them make the the systematic connections between the various dimensions um, of Jesus' death. And I'd love to see people in seminaries also making those connections. I think it would really deepen our the kind of songs we sing at church, the kind of prayers that we pray at church, the thanksgiving that we give God, and also our expectations for what the Christian life looks like. Like, if the cross is strongly related to a moral example and being other person focused, well, then that really should shape discipleship.
1: Exactly. I mean, the, we should be, to use the language of Michael Gorman, we should be cruciformed. Yes, You know, Conform to the pattern, the example, the likeness, the shape, the theology mm. of the cross. Mm. So, yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah, that's excellent, Mike. Thanks. Excellent. Good. Well, PSA affirmed and put in its correct context.
0: Off the press. Mike, we've just spoken about the many dimensions of God's saving work and reconciliation, and one of those is breaking um, God's hold on people and breaking demonic influences on people and societies. Yep. And we've got two excellent books, um, Against the Darkness by Graham Cole, and then Michael Heiser's Demons. Um, and I'd like to discuss them both Um, together in a way, because they do different things. The first one is Michael Heiser's demons. He takes an ancient Near Eastern approach to the demonic and how understanding the ancient Near Eastern context of what's written in Genesis in particular helps shape our understanding of the demonics. Of the um, Nephilim, um, of the souls of dead giants, for example, watches, all that kind of stuff. So he takes an ancient Near Eastern view that helps him, I guess, crack the code of what's written. In Genesis, what's your take on uh, Heiser's work to do with demonology?
1: Oh, he's very good on looking at the Old Testament, in particular, in light of ancient Near Eastern studies. Mm. So that's kind of his main thing. So you know, he's done things like Red Akkadian, and he knows about you know, the Babylonian literature and and Egypt's literature. And so he's, he's very good on that. I mean, some of, of it may appear to be uh, inaccessible, a little bit esoteric to a lot of people, since it really is a kind of specialized area. You know. The mm. whole Ancient Near East, but there is some of it is very informative, and it re- it really gives you a sort of a whole bunch of uh, aha moments. Like you know, when you know about how some Jewish groups treated the origins of evil, not with Adam's sin, but with the coming of, of the angels. That's really where uh, evil entered the world, and you and you can find that in a lot of literature, and it's that kind of background. You could argue also shapes some of the narratives and some of the tensions and some of the imagery in something like the Book of Revelation.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So some of it's very, very important, very useful. Again, it can feel a little bit distant um, to the ordinary people who just read like a little bit of Daniel or something. Uh, But he's trying to go like two steps behind that and look at the, the world uh, of Daniel and uh, of people back time, in those times, you know the Persian and Greek empires. What did they think about demons and spirits? Uh, but it's a, it's a it's a big comparison because he's more of an ancient Near Eastern, you mm. know, um, textual scholar, whereas you know Graham Cole is a systematic theologian.
0: That's yeah. a different approach. So, whereas demons by Hysar looks at the Old Testament in particular in conversation with ancient Near Eastern studies, the conversation that Graham Cole wants to have is a conversation within the canon primarily, right? So how the New Testament helps us understand the Old, how the Old helps us understand the New. Um, And he brings in some helpful systematic um, theologians at uh, appropriate points. So, for example, he will discuss... What, what does it mean to have a spiritual nature, which is a systematic question, a metaphysical question about the nature of angels? And that's the kind of question that St. Augustine asked, Aquinas asked, and so forth. So, Cole is doing intercanonical conversations with the thought of um, specific theologians on very select questions, which is Cole's strength. I mean, you look at the, the thickness of this book. He doesn't write massive tones, tomes. It's because he knows which questions to pursue. That's what's great about Graham. So we have two different approaches, a biblical theological approach and an ancient Near Eastern approach. I think brought together, you have a very rich resource for your theology classes in your seminary or your preaching series. I think we need to address the demonic And because we need to push back on the fact that we live in a secular age where there's no supernatural forces. However, the only people that often seem to be doing anything to do with the supernatural seem to be people who are just as um, superstitious as those people that are surrounding their beds with salt before going to bed because they're scared of the demonic.
1: And if I can add something to that, there was one uh, sociologist. I can't remember his name. He argues that a healthy society needs to believe in Satan. Really? Yeah. And th- this is this is his theory. He says people have two types of evil. There's the ultimate evil, right? Okay. Now that can be metaphysical, symbolic, uh, supernatural, um, mythical, whatever it is. And then you have what's instrumental evil. Okay. okay. So you would say, okay, you know, like I don't like Dan Andrews or Scott Morrison. I think they're bad, they're evil, but they're not Satan.
0: No, but they're instrumental. Yeah. The evils are done through them. Yeah, but
1: here's the thing. If you don't believe in Satan anymore, you then conflate the absolute evil with the instrumental. In other words, and here's the thesis. He says, if you don't believe in demons, you will then demonize people in order to compensate for that. That makes a lot of sense,
0: actually. And
1: he says, you know, as we become a, uh, less religious, we then tend to religionize our conflicts with other people, and we will literally regard them as Satan and demons, and they no longer become fellow human beings under the sway of an evil power. They now become the evil power we are against, which in turn justifies us using you know, other measures, Everything ranging from well, we better get them before they get us, mm. and, and that kind of a thing. So that, that's and that's that, that's the thesis of of, of the sociologist that belief in Satan is
0: necessary for a healthy society. Otherwise, you demonise people. Yeah, and that that has consequences for the civility of society. Indeed, if I if I demonise you and think that you are some kind of ultimate evil, merely um, in contrast to doing evil things, I'm less likely to try to engage with you and converse and discuss and debate. Yeah.
1: It means people need to be not – your enemies need to be not debated or persuaded. They simply need to be destroyed. Wow. That's the way – see? We need Satan to be a civil society. (laughs) But now and not yet. Now, Scott – I know that you are, much like me, an avid podcast listener. Like, I, I I love my podcasts. I listen to them on the way to and from work. I've got so many favorite ones. I like the Ask into Write Anything podcast, the Theology in the Raw podcast with Preston Sprinkle. There's the... Twin Cities podcast, there's the rest is history podcast, uh, the revolutions podcast, the history of Yugoslavia, the history of Byzantium. I love my history and my theology podcast. Uh, the Where do we Go from here podcast with a friend of mine, Devi. Um, yeah, I mean th- those are my favorite podcasts. What, what about you? I mean what 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 podcast do you like listening to?
0: Yeah, well, I for theology, I like listening to the Thomistic Institute Angelicum um, podcasts. They're by Roman Catholic Dominicans, and they are very, very high-level theologians. They often have Protestants coming to give talks um, on the Trinity and Christology in particular. I also like um, keeping my languages fresh. So in German, I like Glaubendenken, which is a German apologetics podcast. In Spanish, I like La Historia de Nuestra Historia podcast. It's about um, Argentine history. Le Monde has a really good um, French news um, podcast. So I use podcasts to keep my languages alive as well. In history, I do like the rest is history. I like Patristica. Uh, there's a number of really good medieval studies uh, podcasts that are very helpful. And in terms of ministry practice, I'll tell you one I love. It's by Schizero, who wrote The Emotionally Healthy Church. He has The Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast, and I find that that's very helpful as well. So I try to have a mix of language, theology, history um and then some biblical studies one like on script is very good they oh, yes. have a number of, that of is those good. uh tying into archaeology and so forth, and I tend to have them in a mix. When I drive into work, when my brain is alive, I listen to languages, history, theology. When I'm driving home and my brain is tired, I listen to um, uh, perhaps some other languages, um, news services, um, and also sports and ministry because I'm more able to cope with them on my way home. That's
1: good. And I found myself increasingly... Assigning podcast episodes to students. Yeah, in
0: class. I've been getting
1: students to listen to a podcast of a New Testament review to learn about Gnosticism.
0: Exactly. And
1: I once uh, uh, prescribed listening to the White Horse Inn to listen to learn about the authorship of John's Gospel. So, I mean, there's some there's some great podcasts in there. If you're not if you're not listening to podcasts, you should check some out. There's a wealth of information there that can help you in your learning, development, and growth in knowledge. But now, and not yet.
0: Mike, it's been another big show. We began with Would You Rather and chickens and all kinds of heretics. We've spoken about ethical frameworks for tricky issues, penal substitutionary atonement. We've dealt with demonology in our book reviews and podcasts. But look, I've got some fake tears here because I'm sad. It's our last last episode for this season.
1: Last episode for the season. Wow. I mean, well, I hope we can have another season. I really do. Uh, but if we do, what we need is to get a whole bunch of subscribers. Tell mm-hmm. us you like the show because if we get subscribers, that way we know it's worth doing. So subscribe and like, but also tell us, if we do do another season, what do you want us to cover?
0: And what do you want me to wear?
1: And if you'd like to know more about Ridley College and the various programs and offerings we have, ranging from doctorate all the way through to our lay certificate, please check out the links below. We would love to have you at college. We'd love to work with you and get to know you more if we don't already do so. So thanks for joining us in the season of the now and the not yet. It has been terrific. Scott and I have had a hoot. Big thanks to our producers and production team, Wayne, John, and Joyce. We could not have done this without them. They really deserve a, an Oscar for the best theological vodcast. I don't know, I don't know if that is an Oscar category, but I think it should be, and they would definitely win that category. So we'll see you around next time. God bless you, stay well, and take care.
0: The Now and Not Yet, a show that keeps you plugged into everything Bible and theology.